According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We're about ready to wrap up, I think, John 17. We have an A and a B and a C, and we're about halfway through the B. And then uh, two more sub-points there, and then C with a 1, 2, and a 3. And uh, should take care of that. John 17. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up His eyes to heaven, He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son. Because I think that would be pretty cool. Glorify Your Son because I deserve to be glorified. Glorify Me because I'm so awesome. That's not what it says. It says glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify You. And that's the attitude of our Savior. It should be our attitude as well, because we too are glorified. But we're not glorified because we're so awesome, and we're not glorified because we've deserved it. We're not glorified because of anything intrinsic to us. We don't have internal glory that's worthy of being glorified. But the Father glorifies us in the purpose clause that we might glorify Him. And uh, the more we identify with our role in Christ, the better I think we're going to do with it. And also remember, to glorify means you're communicating the high regard that you hold somebody in. That's what it means to glorify. God the Father holds us in high regard because we're in Christ, and He holds Christ in high regard. We need to recognize that. He doesn't hold us in high regard because we have earned it or deserved it. Nothing that we can uh, uh, try to credit ourselves uh, on our own behalf. The Father's not impressed with anything. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. So hopefully you understand that. We're not going to depart from grace at any point that we study here in this high priestly prayer. All right, this is point nine on the outline. Jesus ends this discourse with a high priestly prayer on behalf of the imminent priesthood of the church. I want to get right back to it, but first with a word of prayer, making sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word. It is our blessing, Father, to feast upon what You have graciously provided. And I thank You, Father, that it's freely given, it's freely received. I thank You, Father, that we can receive by grace the uh, the meat of, of doctrine that You have provided. Father, I pray that we would receive it uh, with humility. That with humility we would receive the Word implanted that is able to save our soul. Father, uh, implant this word implant it firmly let it dwell richly within each one of us we don't want to walk out of here with with knowledge uh, that puffs up father but with the love that edifies so open our eyes to truth help us grow in grace and knowledge father that we might be living testimonies to your son our lord and our savior jesus christ in whose name we pray amen all right jesus ends this discourse that's the upper room and walk to the garden discourse from uh, john 13 through 16 um, 16 kind of wraps up the, the spoken portion of the discourse. In other words, the uh, address of Christ to His 11 believing disciples. And then after these things, the key transition there in 17.1, Jesus spoke these things. That message from 13.34 to 16.33. And lifting up His eyes to heaven, He said, Father. Now He's no longer addressing the 11. He's addressing the Father. But he's addressing the Father on behalf of the eleven. 
All right. And this is going to be very clear throughout the uh, process of the entire prayer. He's not praying for the world. He's not praying for the cosmos, but for the ones that were uh, chosen out of the cosmos, the ones that the Father has given him. He's asking on their behalf. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on, of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I think it's vital in the church age that we understand we are here for us. We are here to minister to our needs. We're to do good to all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. And so our ministry starts here. I mean, there's untold billions of hungry people in this world, but who do we, who do we meet the needs of first? The brothers and sisters here that don't have food in their cupboard. And brothers and sisters here that are out of work. Brothers and sisters here that have such needs. See, And then as available, we, have, we go beyond these walls, of course, as long as we're taking care of first things first. Related to that. All right. Now under this, we have an A, a B, and a C. We've covered A in its entirety. His prayer begins with an amazing focus on glory, verses 1 through 5. And uh, as I mentioned, the glorification is so that we too may glorify. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Really, it's a treat in the present church age that we have immediate glory. All that we do today resounds to immediate glory. We have earthly activity with heavenly consequences. We have earthly activity with heavenly reality. And we can glorify God today. We're commanded to glorify God today. That's pretty unique. In the Old Testament, they, they, uh, they were looking forward to a future glory. They didn't have the immediate glory such as you and I have. The glory in Christ, in the Father, and all the things associated with that. Subpoints to that, I'll let those go. We've covered them repeatedly. Moving on to point B, his prayer celebrates the disciples that he has trained during his earthly ministry. So it begins with a focus on glory, and then it celebrates the disciples he has trained. And uh, we can glean a lot from this as well, just in terms of attitude. The attitude we should have of thankfulness. Uh, he's not grumbling. He's not, he's not griping or complaining. He's not bemoaning uh, what, a, what a knucklehead Peter is. And why, why do these disciples keep doing stupid things and saying dumb things? And why are they, why are they always fighting with one another? Why are they always competing about who, who gets to sit where and who's the greatest in the kingdom and all this other stupid stuff? Okay. Now, there's plenty of that. These, these, these 11 knuckleheads, you know, not to mention the unbeliever, Judas, but these, uh, you imagine they must have driven them up a wall. But he doesn't gripe or moan or complain about any of that. In his prayers, he's thankful. He's thankful for those that have been given to him. Thankful for those that he's been responsible to teach and to minister to and to lift up. Really, uh, the role of a shepherd in pouring out your life for the sheep is that you're loving them and you're serving them and you're ministering to them. You want all the best for them. And, uh, and we see that here. So, I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. And we need to identify this. I think we've got a pattern here, something that we see expanded upon in 1 Peter 5 with, re with reference to those that have been allotted to your charge. And then when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That uh, we, sheep are allotted to shepherds for, uh, for that shepherding care. And these are the ones that have been allotted to him. He doesn't grumble. He, why is it so few? Why are there only 11 left? I used to have thousands. And why did they all peel away? Right? Why am I down to 12, including an unbeliever that's gone to fetch soldiers now to arrest me? Uh, why am I down to 11? Okay. And there was more than that. Matthias is here tonight. Uh, 
the other uh, there's there's others that are here tonight. Judas called Barsabbas is here tonight. There's others that are not named that are here tonight. Um, we understand that from Acts chapter two. All right. So he's celebrating the disciples that he has trained. I hope uh, you had some time to chew on this. This manifestation of the name. I find it to be powerful. Something that I chew on. Something that I wonder when it comes to this name. And uh, in verse 6, verse 11, verse 12, verse 26, we've got this name that keeps um, coming back up. Um, Holy Father in verse 11. Keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. Remember, we're a stewardship that bears the name of the Father. We're not illegitimate sons. We are legitimate sons. We bear His name. He disciplines us because we bear His name. All right. If we didn't bear His name, then He wouldn't discipline us in love the way that He does. But we are children of God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. We are royal family of God. And He's going to hold us accountable. See, uh, if you thought the queen was all uh, <laughs> out of sorts with Prince Harry and doing something naked in Las Vegas and getting caught on camera and all that, I mean, I don't know the whole story. i just seen headlines and stuff. Um, you know, you see a headline about a naked Prince Harry, and I don't click through to look at pictures. But um, anyway, evidently, from what I've read, the queen is livid, absolutely livid. Well, of course, you know... Um, He's brought discredit on 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 the, the house of Windsor. She, he's, she's, you know, she doesn't need that. That's discrediting. That's that's shameful. That's beneath the dignity of of her, you know, royal office. All right. Now that all that is is just an earthly illustration. You know, what, what is the house of Windsor anyway? <laughs> okay, it's the house of Sax Goldberg Gotha or what? Sax Coburg Gotha, I think, was their German name before. World War One, they said, ooh, we shouldn't have this German name, so they changed it to the House of Windsor. Anyway, but keep that. That's the illustration for the, the much higher reality. We bear the name of God the Father. If you bear the name of Christ, you bear the name of God the Father because that's the name that He bears. All right, And we're sons of the Father. And unless we're illegitimate bastards, is what Hebrews says. Okay, I'm trying to be crude this morning. That's just the blunt language Hebrews uses. It, because we're not illegitimate bastards. He is not ashamed of us. He is proud of us. He claims us. He loves us. He disciplines us. And that's a powerful thing. And so there's a parallel. And I tried to, in, I tried to teach this last week. Maybe didn't do so successfully. But in Exodus chapter 3, when Israel was being called out of bondage, when Israel was being shaped as a nation, when, when uh, Moses was being commissioned to, to be the one to lead them out of their bondage, um, the significance of the name Yahweh was revealed to Moses. And the significance of Eye behind Yahweh was, was revealed. And that the I Am of Eye was the significance to the personal name of Yahweh. And so, whereas Yahweh was known going back to Abrahamic times and earlier, uh, non-Jews had a framework to understand Yahweh. They actually were very terrified of Yahweh. Uh, but the Jews were given a memorial name that is the I Am reality that was supposed to uh, encourage them underneath the name Yahweh. It was supposed to be the memorial. Yahweh would cause them to remember the I Am that redeemed them from, from their bondage. And so in Exodus chapter 3, we have the significance of the name Yahweh uh, in preparation for the establishment of Israel. And here we have something very parallel. 
I find it to be extraordinary that on, uh, on the verge of the church being birthed, on the verge of the church being revealed, that we have a, a significant milestone that is the manifestation of the name of God the Father. And it's a wonderful, wonderful reality that you and I still enjoy today, 2,000 years after the start of the church. And for the entirety of the church, up to including the rapture of the church, the name of God the Father is the name that we bear. The name that we bear. That becomes uh, a remarkable study. Now secondly, in this prayer celebration, our church is grounded in giving. As he celebrates the disciples, he celebrates that the Father has given them to him. The Father has given them to him. We have all these references to giving in verse 6, 7, 8, 9, 11, 12, 14. It just jumps out at you again and again and again and again. Giving. Uh, the men whom you gave me, they were yours and you gave them to me. See, So it's a gift. We want to be faithful with what we're given. To whom much is given shall much be required. And I'd like to see more of this stressed. I doubt that it will be, but it, it would be nice if more of this was stressed in um, church growth material, books and seminars and, and what have you. The idea that, yeah, we can go through these earthly methods for church growth and outreach and how do we attract larger crowds and how do we get more visitors to stick and blah, 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 all these studies related to church growth. Well, how about church growth that's focused on who the God the Father has given, who Jesus Christ has given, the sheep that have been allotted to your charge, and praying if, if, uh, if you know, God's going to allot more to the, to the charge here, if He's going to send more sheep here, that means we better be ready. That means I better be ready as a shepherd. You better be ready as older believers. This congregation better be ready to take along a, a new batch of, of, uh, of babes in Christ. And how is it that we get a new batch? And how do we bring them alongside? And how do we minister to them? Okay. Of course, not every new person's a babe. We get folks come in from out of town. In fact, I learned uh, yesterday we may have a family moving here from Mississippi, and I'm hoping they do. Hoping the Lord opens that door. All right. In any event, it's not about what we do to attract people. It's about what the Father does to entrust people. And God the Father entrusts people to Christ. Uh, he mentions that here. Jesus Christ entrusts people to, frankly, to me, to the shepherd of this flock. That's the allotted to your charge principle from First uh, Peter chapter five. Are you familiar with that? Do I need to turn there? You know what I'm talking about. Okay, well then that's where we're dealing with. And so we see this: these disciples have been given to Christ, and uh, verse seven: everything has been given to Christ. They have come to know that everything you have given me is from you, uh, for the words which you gave me. I have given to them. His message was not his own. It was the message from the Father. Likewise, our message is not our own. It's our message from Christ, our message from the Father. But there's giving, 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 giving all the way through this passage. We understand agape giving has no limits. Our position in Christ has given us everything. Agape giving has no limits. This is why it's more blessed to give than to receive. The idea of giving... It's unfortunate how when the doctrine of giving is taught that people immediately jump to money. Giving is so much more than money. Giving is yourselves, first of all. Giving of yourselves to the Lord. Giving of your time. Giving of your ministry. Giving of, your, uh, of everything. And there's nothing that we hold back. And unlike the earthly realm, when you give something, you 
lose ownership of it or you lose possession of it and what have you. That's not true in the spiritual realm. You are actually richer for having given. You are more blessed for having given. Uh, The fact that the Father has given us to the Son, but He still holds us in His hand. We see that here. We see that in John 10. We see other applications of that as well. When you give grace to another believer, do you have any less grace? No, you have more actually. Because you are now better practiced at giving grace. When you give comfort, does that mean now you have a a comfort deficiency? When you give mercy, do you have less mercy? No. Anything you give in the spiritual realm, in that dynamic of serving others in Christ, you actually have more of it. You're diminished when you turn into a miser and don't give any. You're diminished when you uh, don't have this agape giving attitude. All right. Are we familiar with Ephesians 1.3? We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So since we have everything, why are we so stingy <laughs> about what we extend, about what we share? And we, we hoard it. We're misers as if somehow we're the ones that produced it, as if somehow we're the ones that earned it or deserved it. Not at all. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I have it all. So you'd think I could be more generous (laughs) with respect to what I'm willing to extend and share and spread and and glorify Christ with. 1 Corinthians 3, all things belong to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. You know, the recognition that if you have something, it's not for you anyway. God didn't give me my pastor-teacher gift for me. He gave me my pastor-teacher gift for my flock. That's why he gave me my gift. That's why he gave you your gift. That's why if, if he's blessed you with an abundance of, of, uh, of, of earthly finances, for example, or other things, it's not for you to just be all impressed with how awesome you are. He's provided it for to meet the needs of the saints. All right. And I think of, uh, you know, he's, he's given us Molly and, and her, her piano blessings. She's been working hard at that and practicing during the week and getting ready for next Sunday. She starts on Monday to get ready for the very next Sunday and she works hard through the week. I'm thankful for that. I try to tell her that as often as I can. I appreciate it. Don't get frustrated over over things, you know, <laughs> related to different things. All right. And, you know, I'm thankful for Randy cutting the grass. I'm thankful for everybody back in the nursery. You know, I'm not volunteering to be back in that nursery, you know. Oops, sorry, I've I got to be in the pulpit. All right, not that I, I know how to change a diaper. It's been a while. But you see what I'm saying? All of these gifts are for others. They're not for us. Your gift is not for you. Your ministry is not for you. The effects are not for you. Others will minister to you, but you have to minister to others. And that's how this works. So the church is grounded in giving. This is why we don't have a have to. Israel had a have to. They had their 10% requirements. They had their tithe. They had their... their uh, tax they had their temple tithe they had uh, it was more than just one 10 percent deal there was a second 10 percent deal and there was a third 10 percent deal every other year worked out to be about 25 percent in in aggregate total they have all their have-tos of giving we don't the church is not about the have-tos the church is about the want-tos all right thirdly then the church is apostolic apostolic and you want to take this the right way if someone can misunderstand you and so forth. If you, if you tell somebody on the street or at work or your neighbor that you go to an apostolic church, they're going to think the wrong thing. Okay, Like if you tell them you're, you go to a charismatic church. Sure, we've got spiritual gifts. 
We're charismatic. Sure, we're apostolic. Christ has sent us. Yeah, I'm Catholic. All right, because I'm part of the church universal. Now, you can use those terms tongue-in-cheek based upon what the terms mean. And yes, there's a reality there. Sure, I'm Catholic. I'm part of the universal church. But if I tell somebody on the street that I'm Catholic, well, 999 out of 1,000 people are going to assume that I'm, what I meant by that is I'm Roman Catholic. I'm a practitioner of, the, of, of, of that routine. Okay? And so be careful in how you use this term. If you tell somebody you're apostolic, make sure that they were in the same class you were in and you under, they know the frame of reference <laughs> for which. Otherwise, they think you're going to start laying on hands and speaking in tongues and rolling the aisle and different things there. All right. It comes from the impact of the verb apostello. Apostello that's used repeatedly, especially in the Gospel of John, but it's used in all the Gospels. It's used with reference to Christ. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Uh, Glenn took us through many of these passages in the book of Hebrews uh, because of Hebrews 3, where Jesus Christ is called the apostle, the apostolos, and high priest of our confession. Nowhere in the Gospels, though, is apostolos applied to Christ. However, the verb apostello is used repeatedly. And probably, I, I haven't counted this yet, but I would suspect that the most common term for God the Father is the one who sent me. Okay? Ha apostelmenos as a participle of apostello. The one who sent me. Okay? The one who sent me. I have not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And him who sent me is a participle from apostello. Right? It's a, it's a, it's a verbal noun. Him who sent me. Him who sent me. So the church is apostolic. Verse 8 of John 17 and verse 18. Let me get back to John 17 here. The words which you gave me I have given to them and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believe that you sent me. You apostelloed me. Now, between apostello and pempo, we got different verbs for sending and and one is much more general. Pempo is very general. No no real reason for why somebody got sent. But apostello is very specific. That you are not only a sent one, but you are a sent one with a commission. You are a sent one with on a on a on a mission. You represent the one who sent you. That you are there not in your own name. Uh, in classical Greek, it was used of, of uh, uh, admirals that are sent uh, as representations of their nation or their city-state, that they had tremendous power and authority over an entire fleet, as it were. But it's not their own authority. They are on commission. They are serving the, the, the Greek city-state or they're serving the nation for which they are sent. Okay? And it's always been the case. Naval power has always been a projection of power. When, when a lot of Great Britain illustrations today, but when Britannia ruled the seas, they did so through sea power, and 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 uh, a ship captain was was awesome in his in his sovereignty on board that ship, but he represented the the, the crown, he represented England abroad. That was the nature of a ship, the nature of a fleet, the nature of projected power representing the one who sent you. And so it's not an accident, I don't think, it's an accident that uh, apostolos was used in classical Greek to refer to a, a ship admiral or a, a ship captain in, in Navy terminology. Uh, but used as, a, as an ambassador, used as a representative, a special legate. The Romans would send out their, 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 their legates or their legates, um, which would represent the authority of Rome in different applications. Okay? And so he is sent, he is commissioned. 
It's not just the fact that I'm going where somebody wanted me to go. It's more than that. When I get there, I've got work to do because I'm representing the one who sent me. I have his authority. I have his commission. I have his, his, uh, his warrant, as it were. And so we see that there. I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. It's like how the book of Hebrews is introduced. God in the, spoke in, in the prophets in many portions in many ways long ago, but in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. It is the keynote address from God the Father, and we better pay attention. There will be no greater message coming from God the Father than the person of Jesus Christ. Down to verse 18. As you apostelloed me into the world, I also have apostelloed them into the world. As you have sent me, I also have sent them. And so the church is apostolic. We are sent ones. We are sent ones. We are here not to represent ourselves. We are here to represent God, the Father and the Son. We're here to, to fulfill that ambassadorial function in the church age. So the Father apostoloed the Son. The Son apostoloed His disciples. The apostles wrote the New Testament and established the church. Every church member is a sent one. And it gets very specific here um, when he says it's not just to them alone. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. We have to recognize that chapter 17 is not limited to the eleven. It's not limited to the immediate apostles of the Lamb who are going to establish the church on Pentecost in just 50 more days. It is actually for the entire church age from Pentecost to rapture. Because it says, not on behalf of these alone, these 11, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And what's their word? The gospel message of the New Testament. So every born-again believer in Jesus Christ in the church age, I'm talking about you and me, every born-again believer in the church age, you came to faith because a gospel message, according to the apostolic gospel of the New Testament, <laughs> nobody here today got saved with an Old Testament messianic gospel that Messiah is coming in the future. We all got saved in a New Testament apostolic gospel. Jesus Christ came he died on the cross, was buried, was raised again, is ascended to the Father. We were all saved with a New Testament apostolic gospel. So we are in verse 20. Those also who believe in me through their word. Write your name in there. This prayer is for you. John chapter 17 is for you. And so we are apostolic. That they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me. Now, Keep this in mind, the apostolic nature of Christ, the apostolic nature of the church, because it's the purpose clause for why we should have church unity. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that, what's our testimony to this world? The world may believe that you sent me. The world may believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the sent one. He is the one that has come into the world to remove the sin. All right, He is the sent one. So the church is apostolic. If our gospel is not pointing to the sent one, we've got a bad gospel. <laughs> okay? We've got to tell this world about Jesus Christ. There is no other hope for our nation, for our, for our planet. Because guess what? The sent one's going to get sent again. And the next time the sent one gets sent, 
it's going to be rough for those that aren't in Christ. I'll tell you that. Okay? No unbeliever enters into the millennial kingdom. He will come and execute every unbeliever from planet Earth. That may sound harsh. Okay? <laughs> but it's the reality. And we need, to, uh, we need to be faithful in communicating that message. Finally, the mandatory survival skill in the church is sanctification in the truth. This is what he prays for. This is what he prays for. That's what my dad prayed for the day I left home. He used this passage. I don't remember that he actually cited the passage, but the words that he used came from this passage in concept. The mandatory survival skill in the church is sanctification in the truth. This is how we're launching our kids into the world. The mandatory survival skill in the church. <laughs> you know, what? Ten problem-solving devices, right? Isn't that what Pastor Theme developed? I don't even... I probably couldn't name all ten, put a gun to my head. I probably could. Anyway, um, here's one. Not a problem-solving device, but a mandatory survival skill. If you're abiding in the Word of God, you can withstand anything. The gates of hell can't prevail against the church if you're abiding in the Word of God. If you're not abiding in the Word of God, forget it. You're a loser. You're going to fail every test your Father's going to uh, put in front of you. It is the mandatory survival skill. It's sanctification in the truth. Sanctification in the truth. Verse 8, verses 14 through 17, and verse 19. All here throughout John 17. Again and again and again and again. Sanctification in the truth. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. What do they need? They need a music program. Did he encourage them with a, a uh, powerful music program? No, he equipped them with solid doctrine. He taught with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse, um, so these are the words. I have given to them and they received them and truly understood. They embraced what they received. Uh, verses 14 through 17. I've given them your word. Hmm. Back up a little bit. Verse 13. But now I come to you in these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. You know, his departure. The saddest thing they've ever gone through but can also be the most joyous thing they'll ever go through. And we, we have that mixed blessing. See, we're praying this morning for joy and uh, sorrow at the same time. Right? Shirley's mother's in heaven now, and we're praying for Shirley and all her siblings, grandkids, great-grandkids. And, uh, and yeah, sorrow, of course, but also joy. We have them both. We don't grieve as do the rest that have no hope. So I've given them your word. I've given them your word. You know how awesome that is? His word is divinely powerful. It's eternal. And the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So, what do you need to equip yourself if you're behind enemy lines? You need the Word of God. Again, it's not a music program. It's not entertainment. It's not fun and games. It's doctrine. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. That right there, I think, puts an end to a lot of stupid prayers. He says, I'm not asking you to give them a problem-free life. I'm not asking you to, to remove them from testing circumstances. 
They're going to be under testing circumstances. They're going to be under terrible testing circumstances. But sustain them, protect them, hedge them about. When he told Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that once you return again, strengthen your brothers. So I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So here's your survival skill. You're behind enemy lines. You're in a world that hates you. And, and the only way to leave this world is through physical death or rapture. So what are you supposed to do in the meantime? <laughs> How do you cope? Right? This world is all about coping and doping. <laughs> and typically, if you have trouble coping, then they give you the drugs that you can, they, you know, doping helps you with your coping. The Bible is about hoping. It's about the living hope in Christ. It's about living in the Word of God and being so in tune with doctrine that it shapes your every thought. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Down to verse 19. For, the, for their sakes, I sanctify myself. Now notice, this can be um, cooperative. This can, be, this can feed on itself. This can feed on each other. He has sanctified himself as an example for us to follow, but also as a benefit. As he is sanctified in the truth, he is better able to pray, he's better able to intercede, he's better able to provide for us, likewise ourselves. See, if I'm not sanctified in the truth, what kind of pastor am I going to be? If I'm not in the Word of God constantly, what do I, what do I get up here and tell jokes or something? What do I do? All right. If you're not in the truth, how do you serve? A younger sister comes to you and she's all in turmoil. She needs encouragement. She needs help. And, and you say, well, I'd like to help you, but man, I, I've, been, I've been carnal for three weeks now. You know, I hadn't read a Bible verse in a month. Yeah, go find somebody and it's in the Word of God. No. You're the one they came to. You're the one that Christ has placed an open door before. So if you're not in fellowship now, you better get in fellowship. <laughs> okay? Keep those short accounts. Don't let it go an hour. Don't let it go a day. Don't let it go a week. Keep the short account. Stay in fellowship. Walk in the light. All right. Be sanctified in the truth. For their sakes, I sanctify myself. You would think, you know, yes, it's for your sake as well, but it's more than you. It's for the sake of others. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. And that's the best part. Because, uh, you know, you may not have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. People come to me, they think I've got a magic wand. I say, I don't, I, I don't know, but I'll pray with you. We'll look at some scriptures, okay? Uh, we'll find some answers together, and maybe we won't, but we'll still be in truth. Okay, there's nothing better. So this is all his celebration for the disciples that he has trained. And he's excited about this. He's excited over the fact that they're going to launch forth. This church is on the way. And these 11 are going to be the, plus Matthias, these 12 are going to be the foundation stones of the church. And that's, that's an amazing thing. And he's, he's got every, confident, every confidence that they are going to survive in the truth. That's the, the words my dad told me when I left home. He said, well, he says, these things are going to sustain you wherever you go, whatever you do. He says, first of all, you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And secondly, you know, you know where to get fed. You know where to get, basically he said, you know how to live your life according to the doctrine, according to the Word of God. See? And with those two skills, you're equipped. All right? 
And, you know, you think about, uh, you know, things parents want to give their kids and, and things, and a lot of things we can't give our kids, but they're saved, and they know the truth. And they know how to walk in the light. They know how to grow in grace and knowledge. And the Lord's going to sustain them throughout their adult capacity. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is the truth. Paul will likewise tell his readers, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. That's what's able to sustain you during any testing. And then it goes from thankful prayers to looking forward. His prayer looks forward to the coming disciples, the pending church. He looks forward, not just to these immediate 11. I think he's speaking of the entire breadth of church from Pentecost to rapture here, verses 20 through 26. Point C then. This is subpoint C and remain point 9. His prayer looks forward to coming disciples. That is, the pending church. Verses 20 through 26. Again, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. And this starts to get powerful because we know that the Father loved the Son, but now we're starting to see in the church age, what are the applications when the Father loves us? See. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Be with me where I am. Now, we're going to talk about this at some length because this is not uh, to, to physically transport us to heaven. He's already said that. Don't take them out of the world. So how can he say on the one hand, don't take them out of the world, but on the other hand, that they may be with me. We're going to be with them in spirit. We're going to be with them in truth. We're going to be with them in focus. We're going to be with them in a heavenly attention. We're going to be with them in a, in a perspective that keeps our attention focused on Christ and the things above. To the point where we do finally arrive physically or in resurrection. By the time we do arrive literally through physical death or rapture, the, um, the vision won't actually change much. Because we've already been so heavenly focused already just think about it. It just clarifies in, 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 a, in a very short way. Hopefully, uh, our attitude will be not looking at earth so much. The things of earth will grow strangely dim. So that the time that we no longer physically see the earth, eh, we don't miss it much anyway. Because it wasn't really about the earth, was it? So, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Spiritually, in a, in a prayer focus, in a heavenly focus so that they may see my glory which you have given me. Now, right now, today, be consciously aware of the glorified Son seated in session at the right hand of God the Father. Consciously be aware. Today, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before us despised the, the shame, was seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on the things above that they may see my glory. This verse is not talking about when you die, you get to go to heaven. This verse is about today, right here, right now. You are seeing Christ seated at the Father's right hand. 
you are seeing that glory. You are occupied with Christ. So that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, although the world has not known me, you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and they will make it known. And I'm sorry, and will make it known. So now here's past activity by Christ and future activity by Christ. I have made your name known during his first Advent incarnation ministry, walking around with these knuckleheads. And I will make it known. That's the church age. This is Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. This is Jesus Christ walking in the midst of the lampstands. This is Jesus Christ holding the stars in His right hand. This is Jesus Christ operating as the head of the church. And what is He doing as head of the church? He's making the name of God the Father known to His brethren. And I will make it known so that the love with which you love Me may be in them and I in them. The love with which you love Me may be in them and I in them. In them. So his prayer is looking forward to the coming disciples, that is, the pending church. Three things under this. Every point one. Every church member, capital M, church member of the church universal. Every church member became such by faith in Christ as revealed in the apostolic gospel of the New Testament. Every church member became such by faith in Christ as revealed in the apostolic gospel of the New Testament. That's why he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for also those who believe in me through their word. Through their word via the apostolic gospel of the New Testament. Our testimony is that the Father sent the Son. This is our testimony. The Father sent the Son. The Father sent the Son. We have it repeatedly here in John 17 and then uh, chapters 4 and 5 of 1 John. Chapters 4 and 5 of 1 John. Our testimony is that the Father sent the Son. 1 John 4, verses 9, 10, and 14. 1 John 5, verses 1, 11, and 12. And this is our testimony. In fact, we've got to be faithful in this testimony because it's the opposite of the Spirit of Antichrist. I should have broken that down into a couple of subpoints. That's all right. Every church member became such by faith in Christ as revealed in the apostolic gospel of the New Testament. God the Father sent His Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. For 4,000 years, believers got saved looking forward. Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. Not anymore. The gospel message now is God the Father sent His Son. Messiah came and was the Son of God. God came in the flesh to do what we could not do. Our testimony is that the Father sent the Son. All right. 1 John 4. Hold your finger there if you like. And then 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another. This is verse 7. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and 
knows God. One of the definitions of eternal life is that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Your salvation status means that you know God the Father. You bear that name. Through Christ you have come to the Father. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. God has sent His monogenes, His one-of-a-kind. God has sent His one-of-a-kind Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. Not one of us loved God. Not one of us came to Him apart from His grace calling us and convicting us and drawing us, presenting us to His Son. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 14. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. God the Father has sent His Son. That's our testimony. We no longer proclaim Christ is coming, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming. God the Father has sent His Son. It's a past completed act. God the Father sent His Son. Jesus Christ accomplished what we could not do. This thought crosses over into chapter 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And what does that mean to be the Christ? To be the sent one. To be the Messiah, the anointed one, the one expected. Jesus is the Christ. See, now in the early church, there was a, a transition. There was a, they would encounter people that were Old Testament believers. They would encounter people that actually were saved in the way that we can't be saved today. They were saved believing that Christ is coming. Christ is coming. He had believing Jews. He had believing Gentiles. They believed Christ is coming. Christ is coming. And in the early church, one of the main ministries the apostles had to do was to spread that good news, to let them know, wait a minute, the Christ you say is coming came. And he died on the cross, was buried, was raised on the third day, ascended to heaven. And he had the opportunity then to to cross over from being an Old Testament believer to being a member of the church. Tremendous amount of that happened in, uh, on Pentecost and through various chapters in the book of Acts and different places. So whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. And that would be starting with Christ, but that would also application for each one of us. We should love one another as children of God. Verse 11 the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life, does not have Zoe life. And that's the uh, passage my mother used to lead me to Christ 39 years ago. All right. And now this, by the way, is our faithful message. There is a denial of that, and this is the spirit of Antichrist. If you back up to chapter 2, you'll see that. 1 John 2, verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So you see how this works. This is our testimony. The Father has sent the Son. If you deny the Son, you're denying the Father. When you accept the Son, you're accepting the Father. All right. So every church member became such by faith in Christ as revealed in the apostolic gospel of the New Testament. Secondly, let's talk about glory. 
And he says uh, that they may be glorified, that they may see my glory. Secondly, Israel hosted the glory of God as an earthly nation, unlike every other earthly nation. That's quite a bit different than what we have. The church receives the glory of God as a heavenly people, baptized forever in Christ and therefore united with both the Son and the Father. Israel hosted the glory of God as an earthly nation unlike every other earthly nation. If we had more time, we would take a look at 2 Samuel 7.23, Deuteronomy 4.32-38. What nation is there like this great nation? You know, what Gentile nation has Shekinah glory dwelling in its capital? What kind of nation has the presence of the holy God that can be approached by a priesthood? What, uh, what earthly nation has a temple where prayers can be directed, where the, the creator God of the universe hears those prayers? Israel was unique as an earthly nation in the midst of other earthly nations. But what they enjoyed was a pale shadow of what you and I take for granted far too often. The church receives the glory of God as a heavenly people, baptized forever in Christ, and therefore united with both the Son and the Father. You know, they had a glory that faded. They had a glory that uh, they were afraid to approach. They had a glory that had to be kept within a veil that could only be approached by one guy one day a year on pain of death. They had a glory that when, when Moses came out from the tent of meeting, his face was shining with it, but then it was a fading glory. <laughs> that veil's gone. That veil was rent in two when Christ was crucified. We have no veil, not in the church. We enter within the veil. We are in the presence of God's glory. We behold God's glory. In fact, the request is that uh, I ask that they may behold my glory. I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. I'm leaving them on earth physically, but I want them to be with me spiritually. I want them to be with me in a spiritual focus, with a heavenly perspective, with their eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, seated at your right hand. I think when you take verse 17.24 there, John 17.24, you connect it to Hebrews 12, you connect it to Colossians 3, and I believe you've got the, the powerful dynamic of what our divine viewpoint perspective is in the church age. We, are a, we receive the glory of God as a heavenly people, baptized forever in Christ, therefore united with both the Son and the Father. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. You know, you have glory. You may not feel like it. It's a good thing glory isn't a feeling. <laughs> okay? You know, you get this little children ditty, rise and shine and give God the glory, glory. Okay? Which drives me bonkers, that whole... By the time you reach the arky, arky, I'm, I'm done singing that little kiddo song, right? But, okay, kids like it. It's fun. But... um if we're going to rise and shine and give God the glory, glory, let's realize that we're able to do so because He has glorified us. Those that He has predestined, He's also called. Those that He's called, He's also justified. Those that He's justified, He's also glorified. You and I need to function and operate in the church age as glorified saints. 
as glorified saints. God the Father has communicated the high regard that He has placed us in His Son. We need to communicate the high regard we, we honor Him in His Son. We receive this glory. And we just take it for granted. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. You know, and in this um, and believers today don't have time for Bible class. Believers today don't have time to grow in grace. They don't have time to come to a prayer meeting and pray on behalf of one another. Saying they got better things to do than show up on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night and start pleading on behalf of the body of Christ. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity. I want this world to see a body of believers that are so united they just go, wow, what is that? How do I get that? How do I have a part of that? Because this world can't offer that. Satan tries to imitate certain things and he perverts everything he touches. Unity of the Spirit is like grace. Even, even the master counterfeiter can't, can't replicate it. All right, like I said, I don't have time, but you can go back to 2 Samuel 7:23 and Deuteronomy 4, 32-38. You can see that Israel hosted the glory of God unlike any other earthly nation. And yet what they had pales to what we have. Finally, the love of the Father and the Son should fill the church and testify to the world. The love of the Father and the Son should fill the church and testify to the world. Verses 25 and 26. The love of the Father and the Son when visitors come in here and you got no clue what they're looking for, and, but what should they find? Are they looking for a singles program? Are they looking for a, uh, a youth group for their kids? Are they looking for nursery facilities? Are they looking for daycare? Are they looking for, what are they looking for? A good gym membership? What are they looking for? Well, sometimes they don't even know what they're looking for. Quite a few come in here and, and get overwhelmed because they didn't even realize this was around. They've never been fed like this before. Like, wow, what is this about? What kind of church is this? We never heard of this. Why does he talk about present active participles? What, what, what's this Greek stuff? What's the, you know, what's the whole point? Well, beyond that, they should understand love and the impact of love and how it is that we grow in, the, in this love. How do we grow in this love? By being sanctified in the truth. There's no other, no other way in this, that he prays for in this, in this passage. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me. Okay, it's got to be so much more. We do more than just say God so loved the world. We say God so loved the Son. Okay, that's our testimony. And uh, we so love the Son. And we so love, and the Son so loved the Father that he went to the cross. The love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. If we're sacrificial towards each other, we get to portray God the Father and God the Son. And the mutual reciprocal love they had for one another. That should have impact. That should demonstrate something to the world. What is it we have this world doesn't have? Pateological love. The love of the Father and the Son. And the more I think about this, we're, we're done. I'm I'll let you go three minutes early. How about that? Three minutes on me. All right? I know. I'm a great guy. Um, but think about the love of the Father and the love of the Son. And Ralph Braun used to say this. He said this a hundred times over, a thousand times over. He said it so many times. I can still hear it in my sleep. 
The first time love ever appears in the Bible is the love of the Father for the Son. It's the love of Abraham for Isaac. Take now your son, your only begotten son, your son whom you love, and kill him. It's the first time the word love shows up in the Bible. And it's all the way in Genesis 22. It's not in Adam loved Eve or Abraham loved Sarah. Or it's not in a love of a man for his woman. It's a love of a father for his son. And, and at the moment where he's willing to sacrifice his son. And that the impact of that is we better get a handle on God the Father's love for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ's love for God the Father motivating Him to go to the cross. And you and I need to have that same love for the Father and the Son. That's why we're here. Knowledge buffs up, but love edifies. Okay, We've got to be growing in that love. Thank you, Father, for truth. Thy word is truth. I pray that the saints of Austin Bible Church will be sanctified in the truth. That the Word of God will shape thinking and attitudes that this love would be nurtured not as a touchy-feely emotion, but as a mature expression of doctrine in the soul. Father, we love not based on the merit of the object, but because we have souls transformed into the image of Christ. You are increasing our capacity to love as our Savior loved and to love as You loved. So, Father, open our, our hearts to this understanding. And I thank You, Father, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.